It's good to be here with you this morning. Let me uh, say a couple things. This is obviously this is Palm Sunday, but um, uh, we don't today. Oftentimes we'll have palms and the kids. It'll be uh, kind of joyful and exciting. And um, um, we decided that we don't want to do anything joyful or exciting anymore here at ZPC. So we're not doing that. Um, but that's not the main reason um, or even the reason at all. It's... Um, so sometimes it is Palm Sunday, but sometimes churches also celebrate what's called kind of Passion Sunday, if you will. Um, and it's, uh, churches are increasingly doing this where they'll do Palm Sunday, and I'm sure next year we'll kind of do it more like Palm Sunday, traditional like that. But we also do uh, Passion Sunday where it's a Sunday for us to be able to reflect and think about the cross. And uh, again, as we've talked about over the last uh, two or three Sundays, um, Oftentimes, if you only come on Sunday mornings and you don't come to a Monday, Thursday, or a Good Friday, you kind of miss out on that. And so you go from the celebration of Palm Sunday to the celebration of Easter, and you don't ever really kind of experience uh, perhaps the more difficult part of the story of Jesus' death and his cross. And so um, so this year, we obviously are doing that a little bit more. We talked about the Garden of Gethsemane last week and uh, the Lord's Supper the week before that, the Last Supper. And and so today, obviously, as you saw from the video, we'll be talking about the, um, the crucifixion fiction here. And um, and so this morning then we'll be looking at Mark 15 verses 16 through 41. And I invite you to hear um, Mark's, um, Mark's telling of this part of Jesus's story. Then the soldiers led Jesus into the courtyard of the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole cohort And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him, and they began saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. And after mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him with wine. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. And it was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed 
his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And these used to follow him and provide for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we pray for your presence with us this morning. As we are here on this Palm or Passion Sunday, we enter into Holy Week. A week for us, God, hopefully to set aside time to focus on what it means, not just that you lived, not just that you were raised, but that you died. We pray, Lord, that we would not simply glide past this Holy Week right to next Sunday, but that you would ask us what you might have us to learn about what it means that you did die for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. So one of the worst parts of parenting, I think, that Megan and I have discovered over the years is the simple fact that whenever we're at home, if on a Friday night we want to watch a movie or something, that we, we are never able to watch it uninterrupted. So we'll sit there and we'll, you know, we've got all the kids down, we're feeling good, and we go and we hit play, and all of a sudden, probably in about four or five minutes usually, Liesel, uh, our youngest, is crying, and so we've got to go in there, we've got to hit the pause button, we have to go and find out what's going on with Liesel, we have to settle her down, you know, and then we come back and we're like, okay, what was going on, what was happening, should we start over again, no, let's just keep going, and so then we hit play, and then we go for a few minutes, and then all of a sudden, Adelie has to uh, go to the bathroom, and so she's coming down. She's going to the bathroom and then, you know, pardon the image, but someone needs to wipe her. And so uh, Megan does that. And so, um, so we go and, and we take care of that. And then we have to come back and we'd say, now, where were we again? And so we, we start over again and we hit play. And so we're, we're moving through. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's, uh, there's Winnie. Uh, I, I, you have to remember their names, Winnie, and, and, and she's lost her pacifier. And so we've got to run upstairs and help her find her pacifier because she will not be quiet until she finds that pacifier. And so we, we do that and we come back down. We're like, okay, now what in the world was going on? We have no idea what's happening in the movie by this point. So we hit play again. We say, let's just watch it. And then, of course, Lee Souls again. And, and so it's just this kind of this massive cycle that simply means that we, we never just sit down and really get a good flow and understanding of what the movie was about. We're, we're oftentimes kind of missing things, missing nuances, if you will, missing themes. And I think in some ways, that's oftentimes what we see going on here as well when it comes to uh, books of the Bible, right? So we, we've looked at a lot of different gospel books in the last few uh, months, but, but primarily probably Mark. But, but it's kind of hard because we read a passage of Mark, and then we, we go home, and we're interrupted. And so then we, we come back the next week, and we, you know, we don't really know well, what, what happened last week, and we can vaguely recall. And, and so we think about that a little bit, but we, we then just kind of go away, and we come back the next week again, and we're trying to hit play again, and it's all kind of confusing, and my point is, 
that we oftentimes kind of miss out perhaps on some of the more subtle kind of nuances of a gospel, if you will, like Mark's. And, and maybe we even we miss out on some of the themes. And maybe Jesus is talking, or Jesus, Mark is talking about one thing, and he wants us to think back about something that happened earlier. And we may not do that just because we've lived such kind of interrupted lives with the gospel. And I say all that to say in some ways I think we see that perhaps a bit in this passage today. Mark 15, of course, is about the crucifixion, and we get to the point where Jesus is up on the cross, and, and he yells out, as I read, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people who were there, the bystanders, they think he's calling out for Elijah, so they, they kind of mock him and say, yeah, maybe Elijah will come and save you, right? And Jesus breathes his last, and the veil, the, the, the veil in the Holy of Holies, right, is torn. And there's some question as to what, which veil, which curtain that is. And, but, but you should know that one of the curtains has the cosmos, the, the heavens embroidered on them. And so that is torn. And, and then we go on a little bit further, and then there's the centurion. The centurion is standing there with the cross, and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. So, If we think of three things, Elijah, the tearing of something, and truly this is the Son of God or this is the Son of God, I think Mark is wanting us to remember in this passage another story that happens earlier. Can anyone think of a similar story to that at all that happens earlier in Mark? The 10.30 or the 9 o'clock couldn't figure it out either, so if you can't, it's okay. Not the transfiguration, though. That's close. That's close. Don't be afraid. What did you say? Okay, so the, tra- yep, the transfiguration, that's, that's right. That's close. There are some similarities there. But if you go even further back, you get to the very first chapter of Mark. So here we are at the 15th chapter at the very end. If you go back to the very first chapter, there is the story of the baptism of Jesus. And who baptizes Jesus? John the Baptist. And do you recall later on in Mark, Jesus compares Mark to, or Mark, compares John the Baptist to whom? Elijah, right? And do you also recall when we talked about this story a couple months ago, that after the baptism that the heavens were torn apart, right? And we talked about the importance of that and that that's the reality that God is tearing apart the heavens in order to get to Jesus and in order to get to us, right? Remember that he will let nothing get in the way. And here we have a curtain, perhaps the one with the heavens that's embellished on it. And all of a sudden that is torn apart. And here in Jesus's death, in in this forgiveness of Jesus, all of a sudden now God has full access to us. We have full access to God. And so here is Mark. Mark is retelling the story. He's thinking, it seems to me, not just of this particular passage in the 15th chapter, but he's wanting us to see the connection to the first chapter, right? And we're not done there because then God says, remember, this is in the, in the baptism, this is my son, right? And can you tell me, there's lots of questions today, can you tell me, because some of you are on spring break in your heads, can you tell me When the first time is in the Gospel of Mark that someone, a human being, says, this is the Son of God, when he looks at Jesus.
not Peter, the 15th chapter, the Roman centurion is the first person in Mark to say this is the son of God. It has taken 15 chapters the life and the ministry of Jesus for somebody other than God, who says it at the very beginning, God the Father, for somebody, for the human being to actually say, this is the Son of God. In other words, one of the resounding themes in the Gospel of Mark is how difficult it is for people to believe that Jesus is actually the Son of God. Again and again and again, we see the disciples wrestling with believing and understanding who Jesus really is. In the fourth chapter of Mark, we talked about this story a couple of months ago. We have the story of the calming of the storm. Right? You remember this story? And they're the, they're the disciples and they're in the, the wind and the waves on the storm and Jesus is doing what? He's sleeping, right? You guys remember that, right? He's sleeping, right? And so all of a sudden, he's, they say, you know, wake up. Don't you care about us? We're going to die. And so all of a sudden, he gets up, right? Jesus kind of, you know, wipes away the sleep. And he, he tells the wind and the waves to be still, and it happens. And the disciples look to one another. And do you remember what they said to one another? Who is, you guys know this story, who is this? So even then, they still didn't quite understand who he was. And then in the eighth chapter, right? And this is what some of you were kind of alluding to. You've got Peter, right? And, and Peter, he seems like he's starting to get this because he does say that Jesus is the Messiah, not the Son of God, but he says he's the, he's the Messiah. And you think, well, maybe he's starting to get this, right? And then right after that, Jesus, you know, says, you know, well, I'm going to have to suffer. And Peter absolutely rebukes him. He brings him aside and says, no, you know what? What are you talking about? And so what does Jesus do? Jesus always one-ups it, right? He rebukes him and calls Peter Satan, right? You guys remember that too. You remember sleeping in Satan, right? And so he, he, he rebukes him, right? And so Peter gets a glimpse of who Jesus is, and yet he still doesn't quite get him because the suffering part is causing him troubles. And then in the 10th chapter of Mark, we have James and John. And James and John kind of pull Jesus aside again, right? And they say, you know what? We're just kind of wondering, is it possible for, for, for me and my brother here, for us to be at your right and your left when you come into your glory. In other words, whenever you have finally kind of brought down the real kingdom full of honor and power and prestige, can we sit at this table with you at your right and your left as your most esteemed officers, if you will, because we are really into that. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you are asking for. And then he then goes on and starts telling them about the fact that, you know, people, rulers here, they allow this power that they get to go to their head. And don't you know that I have come not to, not to uh, be served, but to serve. So James and John still don't quite get it. And, and perhaps Peter, right, this is kind of, I, I found this interesting. This was brought up this week, um, uh, is that Peter, when, when he denies Jesus three times, he says, I don't know this man. And someone said, well, he might actually not be lying, right? He thinks he's lying, but he may not be lying because he clearly really doesn't get him. 
right? And then when we look at the way that Mark describes this crucifixion scene, right? He says that on his right and on his left, ding, ding, if you've read the whole story, you're thinking, oh, remember James and John wanted to be on the right and the left. Well, guess what? Jesus says, do you still want to be on my right and my left now? So there's this fascinating kind of reality that the people, the disciples are struggling with understanding who Jesus actually is. They get glimpses, but they don't really get it. Nobody gets it again until the centurion. And why does the centurion, why does the soldier, there he is in front of the cross, why does he understand that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, people have asked that question. Why do the disciples not get it? But he gets it. And people have kind of thrown out ideas. Uh, uh, you know, maybe it's because everything got dark and he thought, well, this is kind of weird and surely there's something special about him. Or, or maybe he could see the veil and he saw that it was torn. Or, or maybe, uh, maybe it's just the fact that the way that he died in, in such good spirits or something, that maybe that's what it is. And we don't really know, but I would suggest that Mark gives us all the information we need, which is this that it was simply Jesus and the cross and the soldier. And the only way for us to really understand who Jesus is, is to see him in the light of the cross. And the reason, of course, why the disciples were always confused about how, who Jesus was is because they could not imagine a savior, a leader, who would die on the cross and suffer from his enemies rather than taking over and controlling, right? Where else do we have any kind of rule like this where the person who wins is actually the person who has been killed or who has been defeated? Where the person who wins is the one who has sacrificed. Where the person who wins is not the one who has the accomplishment, but the one who is on the cross. You can't really blame the disciples for still not being able to understand who Jesus was until they actually began to see the cross. And the reality is, it seems to me as I was thinking about that this week, is that I think that most of us, if we're honest, we also grapple with this. I think most of us, and I would include myself here, are Mark 4 followers, are Mark Christ followers, are Mark 10 Christ followers, but we struggle with being Mark 15 Christ followers. We get it a little bit, but as soon as the suffering part comes around, we really don't understand that, and we especially don't understand it when it comes to what difference does that make in our own lives. How would we live differently if we genuinely believed that Jesus died on the cross? How would we live differently if we really believed that we were serving a crucified Savior? We like to focus, again, on the Easter Savior, on the one who's riding in and the kingdom who is coming. And how often are we willing to simply ask ourselves, what does it mean that we follow and our leader is the crucified Savior. I suppose a part of the question is whether or not we have been shaped more by James and John than we have by Jesus. And if we began to understand what it means to be shaped by Jesus, how might that look a bit different? As I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, well, probably a good time for us to think about this is, is as we are entering into Holy Week. And 
Again, this is a passage that maybe we would talk about on a Good Friday, but it would only give you like one or two days to think about it and before all of a sudden you're there in Easter. So one of the things I'd love for us to do this week is to kind of really wrestle with that, with, with what it means that Jesus, his victory did not come in worldly or political success, but on the cross. What's it mean that Jesus was virtually silent when he was being unjustly accused? What, is it, what does it mean that rather than turning the whip on those who were whipping him, he decided to simply sit there and receive those wounds? What does it mean that he asked for, that they would be forgiven rather than vengeance? What does it mean that he served and died for all, even his enemies? Perhaps, perhaps this week, one of the things that we can do is just simply ask that question and, and really focus on what it means that we serve this kind of Savior. But I think one of the other questions that perhaps we could ask as we kind of wrestle with what it means that we serve a sacrificed Savior is to ask, how does that mean we live differently day to day? I'm going to ask how many of you raise your hands to so raise your hands and just tell me, how does it, what difference does it make with the fact that we serve a Jesus and a, and a God who didn't just come in in great victory, but who had to first suffer and endure? How does that change how you live day to day? I think perhaps one of the greatest ways that that reveals itself, whether we really grapple with that, is how we deal with those who are or who we may at least assume to be our enemies. Those who perhaps hold differing views than we do. Those who easily make us angry. And I thought to myself, well, this is an interesting week to think about that, isn't it? I'm not one to stand and to talk about politics very much from behind the pulpit. I know from time to time people want me to, and I get it. But by and large, I feel like... uh, it's, uh, it's, it's dangerous uh, because you're almost always going to divide people. And there's enough in Scripture to divide people without getting into politics to divide them. So I don't want to talk about this particular issue that some of us might be thinking about right now. Though I do want to talk about it. But I also want to talk about other issues, other sensitive issues, other things that we wrestle with. Because one of the things that's happened this week that I have realized more and more is I'm not sure that we as Christians, those who are on the left of Jesus and the right of Jesus, I'm not sure that we are debating these things out of weakness and vulnerability or whether we are like James and John doing it out of a sense of power, much like the world perhaps would fight these issues. And I want you to know, as your pastor, if you ever want to talk about any of these things specifically, I'm more than happy to sit around and and have a meal together and talk to you about it. But I want you to know what I am most concerned about the fact is that if we continue to do things the way that we are doing them within Christianity on the left and in the right, I want you to know that the biggest loser is not the left or the right, but is the sacrificed Savior. And if we can't start having these discussions in different ways, it is Jesus who loses. 
So one of the questions that I have been grappling with this week is, what does it mean for us to live crucified, cruciformed lives? Lives that are shaped by the cross. And perhaps, because I can't answer this for you, and each of you know your own hearts, perhaps as I thought about it, maybe we can just ask a few questions. So I came up with three questions. These aren't questions aren't brilliant. I'm actually not all that happy with them, but I, I, mean, I couldn't come up with anything else. But you may have a better question, and that's great. But I want us to think about these three questions. Let's look at the first question. Have we engaged in silence and listening, even enduring criticism, before we have responded with our own opinions? Jesus sat there and virtually, as I said, said nothing in the midst of persecution, of actual persecution. What might it look like if we decide to endure and to listen and to genuinely listen before we respond out of oftentimes anger? I don't know. Second question. Have we been willing to suffer for others before we have stood up to oppose them? How might the enemy or the person on the other side look a bit different if we have decided to come alongside of them and to endure with them? Whatever that means, for whatever subject it is. And there are a plethora of them. What might it look like if we decide to to be there and to be with them in the midst of that? before we stand up to oppose them. Third question. Have we looked for opportunities to be servants to our enemies in the posture of weakness rather than simply finding stronger means to overcome them? I know that if I'm in a debate or whatever it is, if I feel like I am losing or if I just feel like there's a struggle, all I want to do is figure out how can, I, how can I defeat this person in some way? How can I overcome them in some way? And I just wonder, and I want to do this out of strength and out of power, and I just wonder what might it look like if we, if we begin to do this more out of a posture of weakness? I don't know what that looks like for you. And yet I can't help but imagine that perhaps there aren't some opportunities in this. Here's what I know, that when Jesus died for his enemies, there were newfound opportunities that came up, much to the surprise of everyone. And I just wonder, if we as Christians on the left and on the right, if we will simply come in and if we are willing to come alongside of and to endure and to suffer and to listen, if we might not have a different discussion. Now, I know that there are people here who think that I am absolutely naive and stupid for thinking like this. And I want you to know I am okay with you calling me that. But if you have any word that you really want to call me because you disagree with me on these things, I would like for that word to be foolish. I want you to call me foolish. That's what I want to be. In fact, that's what I would prefer if anyone calls Christians anything. What I most want them to call us is foolish. Because that's exactly what Paul says the cross is, foolish. And I am foolish enough to believe that by trying to think about these things in a different way, that maybe there will be new opportunities. Because I am foolishness, foolish enough to believe 
that the greatest victory we have ever seen came at what appeared to be the greatest defeat we have ever experienced. And I am foolish enough to believe that the man who had every claim to every right and every freedom that this world ever had was still willing to suppress those in order to endure for the other. I'm foolish enough to believe that the ways to counter our enemies is not necessarily by gaining power over them, but by being willing to serve them. I know that that annoys some people. But my hope is that in that annoyance or in the joy, that we can kind of wrestle with these things together. And in such a way, perhaps as we wrestle and debate, we might just move further through Mark, through the 11th and the 12th and the 13th and the 14th until we reach the 15th chapter. And perhaps after wrestling with these things, after being fools together, after suffering with one another, sacrificing with one another, listening to one another, that perhaps, just perhaps, in the midst of all of that, we might realize that we have come up against the shadow of the cross. And that maybe, just maybe, we can sit there with a centurion after having endured and we can begin to say to one another, truly, much to our surprise, truly, this is the Son of God. The foolishness of the cross. Life. For those who believe it. Amen.